So the last, uh, since, well, we've been doing this for some time now. We've been going through the, um, the Old Testament, and we started off actually with this whole thing, especially since there are a few people on here tonight that are uh, newer to our, to our study. I want to kind of just catch you up on where we've been and, and what the flow of, of the night kind of looks like and why. Uh, we initially started this whole endeavor by really uh, talking, going through systematic, more like a systematic theology, understanding God and who he is, uh, what he's done. And at some point along the way, uh, we started talking about not only what he's done, but what he's preserved for us in his word, uh, how he has built and shaped um, his kingdom, which is ultimately culminated in Christ. Um, where Christ has come and, and put together his, uh, uniquely has put together his body um, uh, by his death on the cross, death, burial, and resurrection has uh, made for himself a people, uh, has redeemed them. And so we then started going through the story of the Old Testament. So we, we started all the way back in Genesis and walked through um, slowly a little bit at a time. All of those, everything that we've done on Wednesday night is, is uh archived, if you will, on online. So you can get those resources at um, emmanueltuscaloosa.org and you can go to the resources tab and you can find the Wednesday night podcast and you can see, which is different than our Sunday morning podcast. And you can get, you can go all the way back really. Um, we, and so I, you know, going along, I wanted to basically kind of zoom out and think through what is the flow of the Bible's story um, how can we, you know, kind of put this thing together? And so as, uh, which I, I hope to kind of in three quick bullet points, catch you up really fast on what we've kind of talked about over the last several months. So the first thing is that, um, if you, if you can think about the, the, um, the whole of human history, um, as, um, interacting with God, uh, where Adam and Eve, the first, uh, the original couple, are uh, dwelling in a place in the Garden of Eden where man's realm, uh, the Garden of Eden, as it were, and God's realm uh, could coexist in, in harmony. Um, but what we've seen since Genesis is that there is a, a, a sin that these two participate in that separates the two realms where man's realm is sort of separated uh, as a punishment from God's realm. And so um, we see that obviously for some time, God is, uh, is working to allow humanity back into his, um, his presence. And we know that that can't happen unless sin is atoned for. We've seen that multiple times throughout the Old Testament, but um, there is this reunion, this brief little uh, glimpse at a reunion that takes place in the in the temple in the tabernacle. And several months ago, we we started dealing with the significance of the temple in Jerusalem um, and what significance it had for a, a Jew. This was really the first time um, since the Garden that man's realm could really interact in the presence of God in uh in that way and so we we talk, we dealt with um uh uh we walked through the basic uh argument of a, of a book called the temple and the church's mission by uh greg beale uh, gk beale which is a fantastic book i would recommend it's very deep and it's it's uh you know tough sledding alternatively you can listen to the podcast where we basically go through the main points of that book and i, and I think it's helpful to understand what the purpose of the the temple really is and, and what purpose it serves of giving mankind access to the God of the universe, the God that created them. And so it's this sort of picture almost of man working back to the garden of Eden or really God allowing them back into his presence again, much like the garden of Eden. Um, but um, obviously what we've seen since then is, you know, Israel is still fallen um, it's still humanity is still sinful. And, and what we see is that it's not long after Solomon builds the temple that, um, that Israel is pursuing idolatry yet again, and is really torn in two. And so 
what we've seen over the past few weeks is that Israel has been, that the nation of Israel has been torn into two uh, almost separate, if you will, kingdoms where you have the kingdom that is in the south, which is more, more or less the legitimate kingdom of Judah and w- has with it the tribe of Benjamin uh, in the south. And then in the north, you've got the other 10 tribes and uh, the tribe of Levi is serving in um, in the in the temple in the southern kingdom, but but really it's Judah and Benjamin that make up the two tribes in the south and then 10 tribes in the north. And so there's two distinct kingdoms with two distinct kings and, and God has separated the two um, because of, uh, of wickedness and idolatry. And so you have Jeroboam initially, it's Jeroboam in the north and, and Rehoboam in the south. And the line of David will continue on the throne in the southern kingdom, but the northern kingdom is constantly in turmoil. And time after time, the northern kingdom is pursuing idolatry and pursuing other gods. And because they're pursuing other gods, they are subsequently judged time and again by God. And the way he judges them and the way he has judged them, at least up to this point in our study, is that he has... uh, taken basically the king's line, whomever that was, it's been several kings since, but has taken the king's line and just done away with it and put another king on the throne in the north. And it's been because of idolatry. But when we look in the south, it's not much better in Judah. So the northern kingdom, we typically will refer to that from here on out as Israel, which is the northern kingdom. And then in the southern kingdom, that will usually be called Judah. Um, so the, the, the Northern kingdom is pursuing rampant idolatry. And in the South, it's hardly better. The Jews in, in the kingdom of Judah are also pursuing idolatry on many occasions and they have occasional relief. So what we will find in the South, far more common, in fact, it doesn't really happen in the North, but in the South, um, occasionally we will see some relief where a king will take the throne and will lead religious reform and will lead the people of Judah to pursue God in some capacity. And so for a while, we were looking at the kingdom uh, uh, that God had established in the Jewish people to bring about the seed of the Messiah. And then that kingdom was divided into north and south. And so we were looking at northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And so we're having to keep track of the king in the north and then the king in the south, which makes things a little bit more complicated. Two capital cities, two kings, two different groups of people. And now we actually are moving into um, uh, keeping track of a third group of people, which is uh, prophets. Um, From here on out, we're going to be dealing a lot with not only the kings, we're going to be talking about them a good deal, obviously, this is the book of kings that we're in, Um, but we're also going to be talking about the prophets that are being sent by God to warn them. And what I want us to do for just a second before we start talking about Ahab and then obviously Elijah is to think about the purpose of the prophet. And, and, and I think this is really helpful. I think it, I hope it is anyway. I, I think it will help us to understand what God is really doing um, through these prophets. Um, Israel's story is uh, one of constantly pursuing idols. In fact, I think if you were to just, if we were to all just be honest with ourselves for just a second, I think we would all say that you know, a lot of our own lives are, is often uh, spent pursuing idols, Um, whether it be idols of our own making or or finances, money, all kinds of different things. We tend to pursue idolatry. It it just, it's, our hearts tend to be uh, idol factories. And those that are, are obviously, um, you know, the Lord's children will also be called out of that idolatry and into repentance. And so, but, but that is, that is part of the process of being a fallen human is that we, we tend to make idols for ourselves. Well, Israel is no different. And in fact, um, their, their whole story, the Northern kingdom and the Southern kingdom, 
is, is a constant pursuit of idols. And if you go all the way back, even into uh, Adam's story in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, uh, Adam is seeking to seize the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because it says, Eve says she saw what was that the, the fruit of the tree was a delight to the eyes. It was helpful to make one wise and wanting to gain knowledge that would make her and Adam like God. Uh, she reached out and, and took the fruit and what resulted was exactly what the Lord told them would be the consequence of disobedience, which was you, you would be, you would be, you would die in the day you eat of it, you will die. And uh, they did. What happened was, you know, I, I, I like the way one commentator put it, sweat and sadness, uh, which was, you know, basically what we see toil, hard work and uh, and sweat and frustration. And on the other end, uh, death, sadness is is now, um, you know, a part of it all. And, and but at the same time, in Genesis three, we have this scene where as God is giving them punishment, he promises them a savior and he uh he he is going to deliver this by speaking through the prophets um and carrying them along by the spirit so he is he is coming to fallen humanity and he is speaking to them um uh, words of confrontation he is warning them about judgment that is to come through the mouths of the prophets as they continue on in sin and idolatry, the prophets function as a word of warning to the not only the nation of Israel, that's the primary beneficiary of most of the prophets, but we also see prophets going to other various and sundry places. Um, you know, Jonah going to the Ninevites and, and other, other prophets speaking to Edom and to places around uh, words of warning. But this is it's confrontational speech. He's con he's confronting people in their sin. And um, and all of this is really helping them understand the predicament that they're in, the predicament that we were in before Christ. Uh, is one of uh, is is a people that have no ability to earn our own righteousness. Uh, you know, no way to work our way back into the presence of God. It's something uniquely that God has to do and provide. And so He speaks uh, through the prophets. So this is one. This is one thing. One function of the prophets is God is speaking through them to fallen humanity. Um, but we also see that Yahweh's word, the Lord's word, is it's an attacking adversary. When he says something is going to happen, it takes place. And his word is not merely prediction. I think we can fall into this trap sometimes where we think that the only purpose of the prophet is to predict the future. That's not the only purpose of the prophet. The purpose of the prophet is to convey the Lord's words to the people. So sometimes, many times, often, that is telling them what is about to take place. There's something that's going to happen. Um, and in fact, you can even you even know that that's one way of determining what a false prophet is, is that the word that they predict does not come true. Right. But so so clearly there's a predictive part of it, but it's also a word that cuts to the heart of the idolatry and sin that lies within us in order to make things new, in order to bring his people to repentance. So um, you, you can see that. I think Jonah is a really good example of that as he is. We don't know much about, you know, the, the Ninevites. We don't know much about uh, Jonah um, himself, but, and we don't know much about the sermon that he preached in Nineveh, other than he says, yet three days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And uh, and the people understand that as a confronting word that is cut to the heart of their idolatry. And they realize that the only way, uh, the only path forward then is to repent, or they, they hope anyway, that, 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 that the Lord will relent of this um, catastrophe that he's seeking to bring to the Ninevites and, and, you know, um, and 
so they repent and, and, and the Lord uh, doesn't destroy Nineveh and, and uh, preserves them much to Jonah's chagrin. But anyway, his, the, the word that he puts in the mouth of the prophet is meant to cut to the heart. So what we're going to see throughout the rest of first Kings and into second Kings is this relationship between king and prophet where the prophet is going to come to them. There's going to be words of warning. There's going to be words of confrontation where they're telling them things that are uncomfortable truths that they don't want to hear. Um, even to the point where uh, some prophets will be chastised because they don't tell the king what he wants to hear. They tell him what he doesn't want to hear. And so the function of the of of the prophet is, I mean, to put a really fine point on it, to be sort of an irritant to sinful humanity because they're carrying the word of the Lord, which is holy. They have the literal words of God in their mouth so that when they speak, it is as God is confronting that king and telling him maybe what will happen tomorrow or what he must do because of his idolatry and wickedness. And we're certainly going to see that with Elijah and Ahab and obviously Jezebel, his wife, uh, in the coming chapters. So um, let's transition now to Ahab and Elijah and see, look, look at their relationship. Um, somebody have their microphone open. You can mute that. Sean had a question. Oh, Sean has a question. I'm sorry. I could, I, sorry, I didn't see. I don't have the chat box up. So what is the question? Yeah, so I was just, my question was, that I put just in the chat box was this. So why did God choose to start speaking to the people through prophets as opposed to directly as when he spoke with Adam and Eve and maybe you know, he speaks through some of the prophets directly? Why, um, to start, why to start using this mechanism of a prophet as opposed to just directly speaking to the people? Well, you know, that, it, that's a, a really good question. And uh, probably I would say there's no way I could give you the, f the full answer to that because I don't, I don't think we're told totally. I will say one, a few things. Um, one, we know that false prophets are, are going to come to Israel so that he can test them to see whether they listen to him. So and whether they they know the word, uh, Moses even tells them that in the Pentateuch that false prophets are going to come to you as a test to the nation of Israel to see where your heart is. Um, so that's, I think, one, you know, aspect of it, um, you know, for one reason or another, God has always communicated to his people through uh, many different mediums. And most of that has been through his people. Um, if you remember back in Genesis uh, 1, we talked about the creation of mankind. And we've talked about this on Sunday some a fair amount as well. But he tells us uh, in Genesis 1 that uh, he, he says, let us make man in our image. And he creates them, male and female, he created them. And he said, let us make mankind in our image and give them dominion. Um, over the earth, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over everything that creeps. And so in Genesis 1, like 26 and following through like 28 or so, he tells us what it means to be made in the image of God. And that is to have dominion. Well, um, I don't want to make this overly complicated, but um, there, there's no, um, to, to, to shape the world in uh, in the way that God has decreed it be shaped is what it means to have dominion over the over the world in front of us. It, it's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Well, if you have sinful humanity um, that is, you know, uh, pursuing idolatry and, and all kinds of, uh, you know, reprobate sins or, or, or um, evil, then one way that God has shaped that is is through his word. Well, because he has uh, he's created humanity in his image to have dominion. Um, part of what that means for the prophets is they are going to be the ones to carry his word to the people. Um, so he is always from the beginning called out 
a people that he has uniquely suited with the task of exercising his dominion over the earth and um, and his rule and his reign over the earth. And the prophets are some of those people, um, people with the word of God in their mouth that can speak it to nations. And in some cases, the nation is condemned because they don't listen. And in some cases, the nation is saved because they do listen and they do repent. So I would say probably part of that reason has to be because that's what he created humanity to to be, is to be his mouthpiece and to exercise dominion as his, if you will, vice regent, as the one you know, exercising dominion in his, in his, in his image. So I would say that that has to be a huge piece of it. Why he's done, done it that way. Now, why has he done it that way? (laughs) You know, why is he, why did he choose to use humanity in that capacity? And that I don't know that we have the answer for, but we talked about, even when we looked at the heavenly realms and, 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 you know, what, what picture do we get in uh, about heaven in uh, scripture? We, we see there, he has his, even even the heavenly realms is diverse, and he has he has um, he he has his leadership has been uh, he has how do you say given dominion to a, a, a lot of different um, you know beings even in the heavenly realms too. So um, so I, it, it's a way he has chosen to operate over the years. Um, if that helps or that makes sense, I, I don't want it to make it really complicated or confusing. But does that does that help? Yeah, no, that, that does help. Uh, kind of give a framework to think about that in. So I mean, kind of kind of makes sense. Sort of that's part of. I mean, I, I like I, it's helpful, like you said, to think about it as you know, as part of God's intention for uh, his cre- you know man created his image to to rule the earth and yeah, yeah. he's using prophets to. Yeah basically interject his voice into that body of men and, you know, and, and to do that. Yeah. And I mean, it's obvious, you know, as you, as you, uh, um, even as we look at, you know, uh, the sharing of the gospel message, what a, what a, what a strange way God has of calling his children to himself. Uh, Jesus tells us in John 10, it's no mystery. Um, that my sheep hear my voice. Uh, they know me, they listen to me, they follow me. And what we see throughout the rest of the New Testament is that the way his sheep are called to his voice is through the mouths of other men that are part of the sheep pen, let's say. They go out, or and women too, I mean, just mankind, but they, they go out, they share the gospel, they speak it, and his sheep hear his voice, a call to repentance, and they repent. And it's such a strange thing. You know, you you would think, well, I don't know, why doesn't he just like appear to them and just, you know, tell them to, you know, hey, come to me. And, and they, you know, sort of wake up and come to repentance and salvation and all of that. Um, well, he hasn't chosen to do it that way. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he has chosen to speak through man and get and put the gospel in their mouth that they would proclaim it to the nations. And so, um, it's a, it's certainly strange to us, but that has to be, I think a huge part of it going all the way back to Genesis one. Um, so when it comes to Ahab and Elijah, um, we see, we saw, uh, Ahab is going to be the son of Omri. And we saw, um, that last week Omri is this sort of, um, counterfeit David. He is, he is a, uh, a, a very, uh, he like David, he has set a capital in Samaria. He's transitioned the capital to the capital of the north. Samaria is going to be that capital city in the northern kingdom. And Ahab, his son, if if Omri is that sort of counterfeit David, where like David he has set a capital, like David, uh, his the nation of of Israel, the northern kingdom, is going to often be referred to as the house of Omri, much like the southern is going to be referred to it as the house of David. Uh, Omri is one of the longer lasting kings of the north up to this point. Um, and so Omri becomes known 
uh, far and wide, he, he's establishing a, a, an international presence with a lot of different uh, alliances and things like that. And, but yet, it, unlike David, he is pursuing uh, idolatry like crazy and uh, begins, uh, you know, the, 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 what really becomes the downfall, I mean, extreme downfall of the northern kingdom. So Ahab, if, De- if Omri is a counterfeit David, then Ahab is really a counterfeit Solomon. And he's going to follow, I mean, in step almost with what Solomon really does, except it's sort of the, you might say the mirror image, the the, the reverse image, uh, the other way, as it were. Um, he he is, you know, very similar to Solomon. He marries foreign women. Jezebel is his wife. We're going to hear about Jezebel quite a bit. She's going to become an image for uh, idolatry and pursuing idolatry. Um, in some cases, pursuing sexual immorality as well. Jezebel is going to become that image, uh, and Jezebel is his wife. She's a foreign. She's a foreigner, as we're going to see in a minute. She is from Sidon, which is uh, which is a twin city of Tyre. So you'll hear Tyre and Sidon mentioned together, kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah. They're 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 twin cities up to the north and east, uh, or north and west on the Mediterranean Sea. And remember, Tyre is one of the cities that helped Solomon build the temple. Well, Sidon is going to be one of the cities that uh, that uh, Ahab partners with, obviously, with marrying uh, the kind of the queen of that city, if, as it were. And Ahab then will also become a temple builder, except instead of building a temple for Yahweh, uh, Ahab's going to build a temple for Baal. Um, and he, he's going to be pursuing, uh, not just, uh, worship and apostasy. He's going to be, um, to, to the point where, um, it's almost illegal to, to not be a ball worshiper. And so I want to look at this in, in first Kings 16, 29 to 34 in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, so Asa is on the throne in the south. Ahab, the son of Omri, began, began to reign over Israel. And, uh, and, uh, and Ahab, the son of uh, uh, Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Nebat uh, that was the first king in the north. Uh, He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, in which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. That's saying something. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of uh, Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, this is rather interesting. We get this little tidbit here at the end that it was um, at the cost of his own children. Uh, And I want to talk about that in just a second, but so he succeeds Omri in 874, and Ahab is on the throne as one of the longer reigning kings again uh, from 874 to 853, and for the next 22 years, he presided over a kingdom that not only they enjoyed prosperity. Now, now this does not, their, their pursuit of idolatry does not always result in poverty. God doesn't always choose to impoverish the nation that is an idol-worshiping nation. Uh, sometimes he makes it rich, which causes them to fall more into idolatry in many cases, and which is the case here. Um, but they, they fall into such moral and spiritual uh, decline that for the first time, the worship of Yahweh was officially replaced by paganism. And not only that, it was not allowed to coexist with it. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel are going to go about killing all of the uh, worshipers of the Lord in the land. So 
uh, Ahab is is a, di- a different kind of evil that we're seeing in, in which is saying a lot because these kings have worshipped idols. They've led the nations in worshiping idols. They've been warned by prophet after prophet. They've been told that their kingdom is going to be torn asunder and that they're going to be replaced on the throne. Over and over, this has happened with the kings in the north, and yet uh, Ahab is worse than all of them. So that's a that's a lot. But you notice this little bit here at the end of this passage where they start rebuilding the city of Jericho. Now, why is that tidbit even told to us? Well, it's probably because Jericho, if you'll remember, was the first city that was conquered by Joshua. Joshua and his and the people, children of Israel move into the land and they begin conquering the cities of the Canaanites and driving out the evil, the wicked people that exist there. Well, what does Ahab do but get on the throne and then commence to rebuilding the cities like Jericho? And uh, and uh, obviously he'll rebuild other cities as well and turns them into uh, places of worship. Now, now, just think with me just for a moment how serious and grievous this is. If you'll take a step back, you'll remember that what it, what is the charge that Israel's given with when they go into the land? It's to judge the cities and the Canaanites that live there in the land and to drive them out of the land. And they they do some of that and they don't do all of it. They certainly don't do it to the extent that the Lord commanded them to. They fail in that. But here we have a king, unlike David, unlike Solomon. Solomon had rest from all his enemies. David began driving out the Philistines. Uh, Ahab sits on the throne and he starts rebuilding their cities, which is basically a, uh, a kind of, you know, thumbing his nose at the Lord who has destroyed the city of Jericho. He's rebuilding it. And that, that, and, and the reason we know that it's not rebuilding in the sense of like, oh, let's make us a nice city to live is because this little tidbit at the very end that says, that he did this at the at the uh, at the cost of his firstborn son. Well, that's sort of an interesting thing, and and he even mentions the days of Joshua there that Joshua had warned him. Well, when you look back at Joshua six twenty six, you may even have a footnote there that kind of puts you or cross references sends you that direction. But when you look at Joshua six twenty six, this is what Joshua says. Listen to this. Joshua laid an oath on them at the time, saying. Cursed before the Lord, be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So this is not, first of all, he's not to do it. Second, this is not like a rebuilding like, well, this is perfect real estate. Let's use it to live in. No, no, no. This is rebuilding the city of Jericho with the expectation that pagan worship would go on there. And what does it cost the city's builder, Hiel, who helped obviously under the command of Ahab rebuild the city of Jericho as he lays his foundation? It cost him uh, Abiram, his firstborn, and it cost him his youngest son, Segub, in direct fulfillment of the prophecy of, of Joshua back in Joshua 6.26. So this is evil that Ahab is doing. And he's thumbing his nose at the Lord with intention. Okay, so again, Ahab, evil, more evil than any king that has come before him. Um, All right, though. So what does the Lord do about it? Now, it would be really easy for him to flick all these people off the earth. Just destroy them. Wipe them out. Like with Sodom and Gomorrah or, you know... He clearly has the power to do that, but is that what he does? He doesn't. So rather than just write him off, he he rises up Elijah the prophet, who is one of the most spectacular, one of the sh- you know strangest, fascinating, most mysterious people in all of biblical history. He raises up Elijah the prophet. Now, just consider for a moment the ministry of Elijah. Elijah is going to be preaching into the wind. You know what I mean by that? I mean that all of the culture 
is going to be dead set against Elijah. He's going to go to the northern kingdom and he is going to preach directly to Ahab and the king that is the most evil and that has is, is the most evil up to that point is going to loathe him. Can you imagine what that would feel like to have that ministry? And Elijah is going to do it, um, you know, exceptionally. Um, he is going to preach and proclaim the word of the Lord uh, without fault, as indicated in, in Scripture. Anyway, he's going to um, he is going to uh, preach into the wind. He's going to set his face like flint and preach into the wind. By the way, Jesus is going to tell us and, and really the, the Old Testament is going to tell us that Elijah is going to come again. And who is that that Jesus tells us is Elijah that comes again? John the Baptist. John the Baptist has a very similar ministry. You remember John the Baptist is the one that's beheaded by the king in the land because he is preaching about the king's immorality. So Elijah and John the Baptist, very similar ministries, but Elijah is going to, is, is rising up and is going to proclaim God's judgment to Ahab. So how does he do it? Well, one day he just shows up on the scene and they're like, who is this guy? That's this weird individual that's coming out of nowhere to proclaim this message. He just shows up on the scene and he announces that Israel is going to experience three years of drought. So he tells Ahab this because of their idolatry, they're going to experience three years of drought. So let's look at that in, in first Kings 17, one to seven. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite, of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And, and the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward. So he, tell, he tells the king this. Then the word of the Lord comes to uh, Elijah and says, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is in the east of, jo of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook of, of Kareth, uh, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and the bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So he shows up, and he immediately knows after he says this message that it's not going to be received well by the king because he's evil, that the king's going to seek his life. And so what does the Lord tell him but to run, to go into hiding so that you won't be caught, basically, uh, so that you won't be killed. While he is there, though, he is given a ministry um, to, uh, uh, well, actually, it's it, he, he goes up north from uh, from there and, and he, into Sidon. And he is he meets a, a, a lady who is a widow and he performs a miracle there by by supplying her with inexhaustible supply of flour and oil. And for his trouble, after the river had dried up because of the drought, she basically gives him a, a, a roof to live under. And not only that, her son dies while he's there and he raises the dead son to life. So the ministry of Elijah is obviously incredible. He's, he's a miracle worker, and he's going to raise the dead, something we will see uh, another prophet to come. Jesus will also do the exact same thing. But look, look at what he says in 17.8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, arise and go to uh, Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake and uh, of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent 
and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. What a miracle that is. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household, he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And this The son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And, and he cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, have you brought calamity upon the, upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, let this child, child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of God is in your mouth. In your mouth is truth. So uh, pay attention to that. That's that's significant is what we see affirmed by the woman who is obviously seeking to be obedient to, to the Lord in that she even by the presence of the prophet, her sins are coming to remembrance. Um, there's, you know, obviously this famine in the land and, and she is, you know, she's in, in dire straits, her son dies. And what she realizes is that the word of the Lord is in the mouth of the prophet. She understands that this is not the prophet's words. There's nothing unique about this individual. It is that the word of God is in him. And that's what brings life and restoration to his people. It's not, you know, the uniqueness or the, you know, fitness of the man himself. It is the word of God that God has put in his mouth. Um, And it is uh, obviously Elijah understands that too, because if you look at verse 14 to 16, he says, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the, uh, the jar of flour should not be spent. It's, it's the Lord's proclamation that gives the life and restoration and sustenance to this woman. So, after three years, the prophet then is going to go, uh, Elijah is going to go to Samaria and he's going to inform Ahab that the famine is going to end. So the, the, the king at this point is obviously getting nervous. All the water has dried up and he now realizes they have a large, you know, livestock, a large herd of livestock that they've got to feed. And with no water comes no grass, and it's very hard to feed him. So he sends out his servants hitherto and yon to go searching for all the grazing land and any water that might be there. Um, but essentially, it's almost come to an end, and they're in dire straits. And so while they're out there, I won't read the whole story, but um, uh, while they're out there looking, Elijah runs into one of the servants. He's told by the Lord to go tell uh, Ahab, Time is up. The rain's coming back. And it's by his word that the rain is going to come back and the land is going to be restored. But to do this, uh, Elijah goes and meets one of the servants in the field, a man by the name of Obadiah. That's not the prophet Obadiah. This is a different Obadiah. But it's one of the king's servants, Obadiah, that, that Ahab has sent out to go to go, uh, you know, looking for land. And so Elijah meets this guy in the field and he says, go tell Ahab that I'm here and I want to talk to him. And Obadiah is like, I don't want to go do that. Are you kidding me? As soon as you left, after you told Ahab that the whole place was going to dry up, he sought to kill you. If I go back and I tell him that I've met you on the road and then I come back and I can't find you anywhere, he's going to kill me because he's going to think I'm holding out on him. I don't want to go do this. And Elijah assures him, look, I'm going to be here. I want to talk to him today. So go tell him where I am, have him come to me. I will meet him today and we're going to bring an end to this thing. And so when Ahab comes up to Elijah and meets him face to face, the first thing that Ahab says is, you're an, en- <laughs> you're an enemy of Israel uh, and you're the one that's caused this whole thing. 
But see, this this and this is what we're what we're seeking to understand about prophets in general. Ahab totally misunderstands the word that Elijah has spoken to him. The the word that Elijah has has spoken to him is a word from the Lord, and it's specifically targeted at Ahab because of his idolatry. Ahab, who doesn't worship the Lord and doesn't give a rip about Yahweh, doesn't even believe Yahweh exists, doesn't care anything about that, and believes that what was spoken to him was directly from the prophet's mouth. That was a word from, from, um, from Elijah himself. And so he tells him, he sees Elijah as the enemy. Elijah has inflicted us. And Elijah is saying, no, 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 that's not my word. That's a word from the Lord. And it's because of your idolatry and because you're leading the nation in idolatry that the Lord spoke that message to you. You are the wicked one. You are the one that is um, is should be condemned. Look at verse seven of chapter 18. It's in that big section, chapter 18, one to 19. Look at verse seven. As Obadiah was on his way, Behold, Elijah met him, uh, and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? Now, Obadiah is an obedient servant. He's someone who fears the Lord. He's actually hidden a lot of the Lord's prophets and a lot of the Lord's people and doesn't want this, this ministry. And he, but Elijah assures him. And so um, uh, look at verse f- uh, 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have you and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed Baal. Now, therefore, Send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel or or Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So this sets up a showdown that's going to happen that we're going to talk about next week that you're probably very familiar with. The showdown between um, Elijah and uh, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. But. I want you to to notice just a couple of things here as we we close. It's by the word of the Lord we see in scripture that the heavens are made. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens are made by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Um, That same word affects deliverance and judgment of his people. Look at Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation. We see it in Revelation and that he reveals himself and in salvation. And the, the personification of that word is picked up on in the New Testament where John tells us, in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So we see G- John depicting that same word coming in uh, uh, creative to, 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 uh, to create his people, as it were, uh, to reveal uh, God to his people and to save his people. The personification of that word is the person and work of Jesus Christ, as John describes it. And he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Okay. This is, and I, I want to help us think through this if we can. How does, what does that mean for the pastor or the the preacher you will hear some people from pulpits call themselves a prophet a uh you know one who carries the oracles of god the prophet of god that that that's the pastor and let me just say unequivocally that's not true um what we see in the new testament is that the 
people that are commissioned to teach and preach and proclaim the word of God, which in some measure is all of us, um, carry the word of God in their mouth in as much as they speak the words of scripture. The words that we have in the scriptures, those are the very words of God. So we can read the words of God to his, to his people. And what is it that cuts to the heart of men and women as they hear the word taught, proclaimed, and preached? It's the Spirit's work through those words. It's God himself who does that. So if you look at Peter's sermon in Acts 2, 37 to 47, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Peter is preaching to them. And he's preaching the gospel. He's rehearsing Israel's history with them. And as he does so, uh, the it says, when they heard this, that they had crucified the Son of God, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sin. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So we have to understand that it's it, that the, the, um, the pastor is not a, the, a prophet like Elijah was. Um, sure, he, he may be uh, given a, a particular office in the church to preach, to teach. That is a, a called office in the church. But I can't stand up at the pulpit and just say any old thing and say, thus saith the Lord. I can read the words of scripture that we have in front of us, and I can say, thus saith the Lord. And I've been commissioned, at least in the by the church and by by God Himself, to 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 explain what those words mean to you. But my job is to stay close to the text of Scripture as close as I possibly can, and explain what those words actually mean, what God is saying here, and what it means to us. It's those words that bring His people to repentance. Also, I, I think we should notice a couple of other things too. Is that um, notice that that the call that the Lord is driving his people to is a call to repentance, repentance of sin. It's continually as Christians coming before the Lord, recognizing that he is holy, worshiping him because he is holy, because he has made us, because he is worthy of worship, and that we, his people, are guilty of sin and he has saved us. And so we do come to him in confession, recognition of that sin, willingness to turn from that sin in repentance and pursue faithful devotion to the Lord. That's what he's calling us to. And when I or any pastor out there stays faithful to the word, that's what we should be held accountable to, preaching that word, helping our people, helping the people here, God's people, understand what the word means in the context that it occurs in, what God is actually saying to his people and the commands that are on us because of what he has said to his people. When we stay close to that word, that's what leads people to repentance. It's his word being proclaimed. That's always been true. Sometimes he has put that word in the mouths of prophets. And now we all have access to it. We have the word of God in front of us in the Holy Scriptures. We can read them. They are authoritative. They correct us. They train us in righteousness. They lead us to repentance. They grow men and women in, uh, in sanctification as they, as they grow in holiness. It's the word of God that does that, and it's the Scriptures that do that. It's our job to be faithful to them. Um, questions? Go ahead, Doug. I see so, that, and God bless uh, you. So what you brought up is um, somewhat controversial today in the sense that, I mean, what you said is perfectly true, but the idea of some people having prophetic ministries is controversial within Christendom. And some people believe that, um, that God has laid a special ministry on them to not just proclaim his word, but to do other things. Um, and, and they tend to fill uh, Pentecostal denominations and, and other yes. denominations. Yeah. Um, 
but um, the prophetic ministry, in, in a sense, what like when Sean was asking his question, you pretty much, I think, answered his question in the sense that the prophetic ministry is taken over by the church, essentially, and, and that it proclaims the gospel. And, and that um, when there, there was a sin in the garden, then uh, that relationship, like you mentioned, was severed between God and man. And it was an exception that, I mean, when, when for example, um, Moses was differentiated, God said, I speak to him face to face. And, and right. that, that was saying that that was an exceptional uh, issue with Moses, but we shouldn't expect that, I don't think. And, Correct. And 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 I don't know if there's, I, I mean, do you think that people like George Whitfield, for example, who's a great proclaimer of the, of the gospel, would have been spoken of in a, a certain way that would proclaim something which is extra biblical? Um, I, I, I really doubt it. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, uh, uh, there are number numerous people that in the church uh, today that that uh, preach faithfully and God for one reason uh, or another and reasons probably known only to him uh, utilize their ministries to uh, to great effect uh, Jonathan Edwards comes to mind as one of those George Whitfield as you mentioned is one of those in the same era as well what was the reason that he used Jonathan Edwards I mean Jonathan Edwards, was by all accounts of the day monotone was read from manuscript with his head buried in the, in the text and did not use vocal inflection didn't believe you should use vocal inflection and he didn't make it through sinners in the hands of an angry god without people falling out in tears and crying in repentance of sin why why did that happen well was it jonathan edwards was it his work as a prophet no absolutely not it was uh, it was the effect of the printed word of God in the scriptures being then explained to people that uh, led them to repentance. God did that. Uh, similar with George Whitfield, who was a totally different person and, and, and by all accounts then um, had a, a zeal that was completely opposite that of, of Jonathan Edwards that God used also. And, and I mean, there are numerous pastors in, in effect today that, that have, you know, similar ministries like that for one reason or another, God, God chooses that, you know, and God, God, it seems um, is, is, has used vessels to carry his word, to call his people to himself. That, that seems abundantly clear. We're told that numerous times throughout scripture and there is zero warrant I think for any of us, particularly in the New Testament, to to say that we have a prophetic ministry, I think that's a dangerous. If you hear someone say that about themselves, uh, not only should it be met with extreme skepticism, but you should run because uh, it's just not true. And what they're saying about themselves is I have the words of God in my mouth. And what I say is what is in God's very own mind. And that kind of presumption is, you know, I mean, there's good reason why in the Old Testament, a, a false prophet is open to stoning uh, to the death penalty. There's there's good reason for that, because they're presuming upon the name of God and saying he said something that that potentially he did not say. So it, it, I think all of that is to be met with not only extreme skepticism, but uh, but just, you know, uh, whatever you want to call it, run away is basically what I'm saying. Pastor, just a comment. Um, what I see in scripture is God's purpose is to use the family. So uh, Doug's comment about the church teaching the scriptures to be to teach the fathers and the mothers so that they can work with their children. Jonathan Edwards, you look at where his children ended up. They were presidents, uh, statesmen, with a biblical worldview. So I think um, that's one of the lessons of, of Adam and Eve when he failed to do that. I think God still wants to work through the family where that's where our Jerusalem, we evangelize our family first. That's where I evangelism think, goes. Yeah, yeah and, there's, and there's no out. doubt. Yeah, there's no doubt that the family, the family unit is a, is integral part to, to all of this. But, but I think, you know, to kind of, Second, what Doug, what Doug, I think, was 
getting at. I don't want to speak for him, but um, you know, there is a clear commission on the part of the church whom God has called as a body of sanctified individual, justified and sanctified, sanctifying individuals um, who will one day be glorified to uniquely proclaim the gospel to the world. Um, That is made up no doubt of families, but um, I think that's what Doug was getting at is the commission of the church to proclaim the gospel to the world. That that's a unique responsibility of the church and its members um, is to do that. That's what he is you know, chosen to do now. Well, just the so, other thing yeah. is that Hillel, no doubt families are important. His, his firstborn son and his lastborn son, that really means he lost every son he had. Yeah. That's what that means. Yeah. Yeah. So disobeying Quite a price. God, he lost, he lost all his sons. He had no one to carry on his name. Quite a price. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, well, can, uh, you contrast, uh, can you contrast prophet with uh, having the spirit of prophecy, spiritual gift. Yeah, well, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, in First Corinthians, the spiritual gift of prophecy. Um, oh boy, how many? How much time do we have? Uh, look, at that we're out of time. Uh, no, uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think there's a number of different uh, ways that that, that can be um, taken. Uh, in First Corinthians, you're referring to twelve, I think, in fourteen. Um, and I, I think a, a number of people have taken that to mean, um, uh, the prophetic gift of basically being able to preach the words of God to the people. Um, that seems to be, you know, in large part, what's, what's going on there. There's some that would argue that that's a, um, that's a office unique, or that's a, um, uh, whatever you want to call it, a, a gifting that's unique to that era, that time period of the, of the apostles. Um, I think more than anything that probably what's going on there is that it's, it's a, a, a preaching gift that's, um, that's being given um, to communicate the words of God. Um, it's now you have to also remember too, in the era when that's going on, um, biblical books are being written at that moment, you know, during that time. So there, there are clearly, you know, the apostle John was a prophet, no doubt. Um, you know, Paul, many others around Paul are, are telling him what's going to happen because of the Lord's direction. So there is clearly prophecy that's happening still at that moment. Um, and so there, there's some warrant to suggest that maybe that is a, a particular thing that was open then and, and is not now. Uh, once the canon of scripture is closed. Um, but I, I think more than anything, probably what's going on too is, is in large part, it's happening, you know, on a weekly basis when you're proclaiming the words of God and they're, they're, they're directly targeted at the hearts of men and women who are hearing that and responding and repenting. Um, that's at least somewhat consistent, I think, with the ministry of the prophets, even in the Old Testament. Uh, what they had and what their function was. So I think that's probably, it's it probably, there's, there's, there's three or four more explanations for what he could be talking about there that I think also makes some sense. Um, there is a, a book that D.A. Carson wrote uh, on 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, which I think is really helpful. Uh, it's very, a slow read, but it's, it's very good in that if you're interested in more, I think it's called Showing the Gifts, maybe, where he basically walks through 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. It's very good. Oh, someone who particularly well rightly divides the word of truth, I suppose, would be another. I think that's probably what's going on. Yeah, I think that's probably what's going on there. And yeah, I I think there's probably a few more explanations that make some sense, you know. And uh, I I don't think what should be expected is that I should be able to get up there on Sunday Sunday morning and say, you know, here's what the Lord is is telling me, um, you know, uh, that that kind of thing, it, unless it's this is what the Lord says in his word. Um, so I think that's what we should expect. Uh, and, and honestly, that's, that's what we should hold pastors to account for is standing up at the pulpit and taking the word of God and telling us what it means, uh, what God's saying there and what it means. And then showing me evidence that that's what it means. So I think that's what we should expect.
Yeah, there's a ton of questions that could come from First Corinthians 12 and 14, I know. So, and I'm sure there's probably a lot baking around in people's minds, but let's, um, let's close in prayer. And uh, we've gone a little bit over time, but it's okay. Um, let's, let's pray and we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this time where we gather together. And we thank you for your word that you have preserved for us. Um, and we don't take lightly the fact that many men throughout history have bled and died to translate your word into the languages that we could read and understand um, that you, uh, unlike the gods of the pagans, um, you have not only given your word to us, but you have allowed it to be translated into a language we can speak and read and understand. And we can hear it as authoritative in our own tongue. Uh, that's no small thing, and we are grateful for that. Um, without it, we wouldn't be here tonight and gathered around listening to it read and, and hearing it and talking about it. Um, we thank you that it changes us and that you have given it to us as a word that edifies us, will correct us, will train us in righteousness, will equip us uh, for every good work. And Father, I pray that we continue to trust in it and that our hearts grow inclined to hear from your word, that on the, in the mornings on our couches, that we devote ourselves to the reading of it privately, that we devote ourselves to the reading of it with our families and uh, even with our friends and neighbors, um, that we may uh, rightly divide the word of truth before uh, people that do not believe, uh, that they too may hear words of life in your gospel and come to faith. Uh, we know you have given us that mandate as those made in your image to go forward. And as we are conformed into the image of Christ, proclaim the message of the gospel to those that are listening. And I pray that through that proclamation, people would come to repentance and faith, that you would bring your children to yourself, that as we, even on Sunday, preach the words of truth, um, that you would bring uh bring people that need to hear it uh, to conviction, to repentance, to faith, um, that we would be baptizing people, that we would be uh, seeing people sent out, that we would be seeing people come in that need uh, the gospel, um, and that we would, we would see that kind of ministry and fruit in our own church uh, through the proclamation of your word. We pray that you would do that because only you can. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.